morning, everyone. And if you're watching online, glad you're joining us and uh, down in F3 as well. Um, we're going to start a study of the book of Daniel today, uh, sort of. Um, I've got to give a, some background stuff and general information. But it's a book that has, um, it has enthralled children with its stories of fiery furnaces and uh, lion's dens. Um, it has mystified scholars with its uh, metallurgic images and, and prophetic futuristic uh, um, teachings. Uh, but it's, it's a book that brings us face to face with the Ancient of Days, with the reality of God and His plans and His, his purposes and just His character. And I think, um, I think it's, a, it's a book that uh, will elevate in our eyes the greatness of God. We cannot read and study the book of Daniel without being in awe of God. It's a book, as we study it, that I think comforts the heart of anybody who is wondering where God is when, um, when their world comes crashing in around them. And I think it's going to be a very um, spiritually beneficial study, as any piece of Scripture is, as we open up God's Word each week and study it. And I've really appreciated Tim Sanford uh, holding down pulpit duties for the last couple of months, especially... Um, and the, the last, uh, and we've worked that guy silly. I mean, in addition to everything else that he's doing, he was uh, doing the preaching here for, for a few months. But the last message he gave uh, in the Christmas season, um, it was on uh, New Year's Day, d December 31st. It was on the theme of the glory of God. And one of the challenges Tim gave us, it, was, um, it grabbed me. It was, as he was talking about the glory of God, it was praying that we would get um, in this new year of 2024 a, a, a greater glimpse, a greater understanding of God's glory and that we would also have a burden to share that glory with those around us. And I want to build on that, that theme. It's an overarching theme that is really in every book of the Bible, that idea of the glory of God. Um, we'll see it all over the book of Daniel. So what is, when we talk about the glory of God, what does that mean, the glory of God? Well, we've talked about this in the past various times. But in the Old Testament, that word glory is used in a very literal sense. It was a word that meant to be heavy, uh, weighty, like that rock is sure a heavy rock. In a literal sense, it meant heavy, weightiness. And when it's applied to God, it's a, there's a spiritual sense uh, connotation that's put on that term, that Old Testament term, and it's the, the weightiness of God. What makes God heavy? What, what, we, we use it that way in today, too. Like, that, man, that name carries a lot of weight. W what makes God weighty? And the Old Testament would tell us, well, it's everything that has to do with who God is. The glory of God is God. It's all his attributes that are all summed up, all brought together into this person, this living God, Jehovah God. His glory is everything that makes him God. His justice and righteousness is, is a part of his glory. His omnipotence, his, his kindness, his grace, his mercy, 
are all part of the glory of God. And when the theologians talk about that, they're talking about the intrinsic inherent glory of God. What gives God weight? What gives God heaviness? Well, it's everything that makes him God. It's his, the sum total of his attributes that are um, placed in his person. That's the glory of God. Now, that glory of God, that weightiness of God, uh, would occasionally be manifested in very unique ways. And so theologians not only talk about the intrinsic glory of God, they talk about the, the manifested glory of God, the glory that's on display. And whenever anyone ran across the glory of God, uh, came face to face with the manifested glory of God, I mean, it, it totally uh, disassembled them. They were left undone before the manifest glory of God. Let me give you some examples of that. In Exodus chapter 33 and 34, Remember the story when Moses says, I, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory, Exodus 33. And God said to Moses, you can't see my glory. You can't see the full, uh, uh, fullness of my glory because no man has seen my face and lives to tell about it. You can't do that. But God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. Remember that? And when I pass by, you can see kind of the backside of the shining Shekinah glory, the backside of my glory. And that's what happened. God puts Moses, or Moses hides in the, behind the rock, and God passes by this, this glory of God, the sum total of who he is, and it's passed by, and Moses hears this, this acknowledgement of God, the God who is gracious and kind and full of loving kindness, the God passed by him. And it says in Exodus chapter 34, verse 8, that Moses made haste and bowed toward, low toward the earth, and he worshiped. Whenever someone came across the glory of God, it left them profoundly impacted. Moses made haste, he bowed low to the ground, and he worshiped God. Another example, when Solomon had built a temple for God, and he dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7. We read this at the dedication of the temple. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering on the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and they gave praise to God, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. What did they see? What happened? I don't know for sure, but something that was visualized in the fire that came down. And they, they were impressed with the quality and the characteristics of God. The glory of God showed up and they hit the ground and they covered their faces and they said, truly God is good. They saw and sensed his grace and his loving kindness and his mercy. He's a good God. They got a sense, a little whiff of his glory. When God's glory is seen and experienced, it leaves people profoundly impacted. A few years ago, we were studying the book of Isaiah here. And in Isaiah chapter 6, 
Isaiah writes that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah got a little glimpse of the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy. The sum total of all that God is, and and Isaiah got a little glimpse of it. What happened to Isaiah? Verse 5 says, Then I said, Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah was never the same. He saw a little bit of the glory of God, and he was profoundly impacted. You go to the New Testament, and there's a story in Luke chapter 5. It's a wonderful story where... um, Jesus is is teaching the crowds on the shore of Lake Galilee. And Peter and James and Andrew and John have been fishing all night. Now, they they knew Jesus. They had had an encounter with Jesus, but they were really following Jesus. Uh, They were out fishing, and there's Jesus alone teaching the crowds. And when he finished teaching the crowds, Peter was, and the guys were coming back from fishing, and they had caught nothing. It was rather embarrassing that Jesus would actually be preaching right where they were cleaning their nets, and these wonderful fishermen had, were coming back with no fish. How embarrassing. So Jesus, remember the story, Jesus gets into Peter's boat. He says, go out in the deep and cast out your nets for a catch. And Peter argues with him, and he says, Lord, you know, we're fishermen. You're not. We've worked hard all night. That's when you catch fish is during the night in the shallows. Now you're telling us to go out in the deep during the day. But at your bidding, I will do it. And so, by the way, have you ever seen The Chosen One on this? That, that series on The Chosen? That's a, it's a great scene. So they cast the nets on the other side of the boat, or the boat, and all of a sudden the fish are jumping in the nets. You know, the nets are just full. They're, they're, they're breaking. They're pulling them into the boat. The boat is starting to sink. And that's when it dawns on Peter. I, I'm in the presence of someone I, I thought I knew, but I didn't. And it says in Luke chapter 5 that Peter said, Depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. He saw a bit of the glory of God revealed to him. And he was forever impacted because verse 11 of Luke chapter 5 says, And they left, the disciples left everything and now followed Jesus wholeheartedly. They got a glimpse of the glory of God. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And that's when they dropped everything and followed God. Profoundly changed, profoundly impacted, coming face to face with the manifested glory of God. There's the intrinsic, inherent glory. It is all that God is, the sum total of who he is. And when that's revealed, little glimpses of that revealed it profoundly impacts people's lives face-to-face with the manifested glory of God. But it, it, it's not just to remain there. It's just not to have these aha moments. Wow, isn't God great? 
because the theologians also talk about the ascribed glory to God. We are to give him glory and we are to reflect and radiate that glory to the world around us, to proclaim God's glory. Glory is who God is. But we are to respond to that glory. That's what our responsibility to who God is. Let me give you an example of that. Again, Israel in the Old Testament. When, when King David brought back the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was that place of meeting. That, that was the, really in the Old Testament, it was the throne of God, the throne of God. It's where the glory of God would, would um, um, would reveal itself between the cherubim that was over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, it had been away. Uh, it hadn't been with David. And he brings it to Jerusalem. And it's a scene of great celebration and rejoicing and, dan- and dancing and as the, the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. And in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 8, we read this. David says, he sang, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples, for great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, and tremble before him all the earth. So they're bringing this symbol of God's presence as of God's glory into Jerusalem. And what is David singing? Sing to the Lord. Ascribe to him glory and tell the world about the glory of God. Now that's summarized in Psalm 96. Very similar. Identical. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day and tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the gods. It's it's a call for God's people to ascribe to God the glory that is due his name and to reflect that, to radiate that, to tell the world about this great God. You get a little, a little glimpse of the intrinsic, inherent glory of God. You, it's manifested in some form or fashion, in greater, in a small little way. And we're to take that and we're to proclaim that, we're to radiate that to the world. It's what the psalmist said when he sang in Psalm 66. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth, Sing the glory of his name and make his praise glorious. A call to proclaim the greatness of God, the glory of God. And what the people in the Old Testament were called to do, the people in the New Testament are called to do as well. So we read, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Makes perfectly good sense. We've been bought with a price. If we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, prior to trusting him as our Savior, we were caught in the slave market of sin. We were hopelessly lost, hopelessly spiritually in deadness and darkness. And there was absolutely no way out. We were in the grips and chained in sin, separated from God. And then Jesus comes. 
And he comes and he dies on the cross. He pays for our sin and he offers the free gift of eternal life to everyone who will believe him. And the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, those chains are broken off. We're set free. We are born again. We are regenerated to new life in Christ. And all Paul is saying is, man, dwell on that for a moment. That's what we've just celebrated in the Lord's table. That's what the Lord's table, by the way, is supposed to do. We're to reflect on what God has done. His broken body, his shed blood for us. We are to see the glory of God. And he says, so glorify him. Walk out of here and glorify him in these, these old earth suits of ours for the world to see. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, very similar. Whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That our whole life should be summarized by honoring, glorifying, radiating, proclaiming to this world the glory of God. Now, Tim mentioned this a little bit in, in um, that sermon in 2 Corinthians. Um, the Apostle Paul reflects back on when Moses saw the glory of God. And it was almost like it was imprinted on Moses' face. He was given those Ten Commandments and he came, comes down from the mountain. His face was shining because he'd, he'd, he'd seen a little bit of the glory of God. So he covered his face. He put a veil over it. Well, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, applies that to us. And he says, we all, with unveiled face, are beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. We come, we worship him. We come and we can study the scriptures. We come and, and learn of God. Tim mentioned this last week in his last sermon on 2 Peter. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And when we come face to face with the reality of who God is, we walk away with a little bit of the sense of the glory of God, and as we behold that glory, Paul says we're going to be transformed by that glory. From glory to glory, we get transformed by it. This is how he worded it in verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. God wants to transform us into his image from glory to glory as we behold him. Why? So what, what's the game plan here? Well, he goes on in the next chapter, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, and he tells us why. He says in verse 5, we do not preach, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is crucified, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. What is Paul saying? The very God who created this world, the darkness of the world, and he said, let there be light, and there was light, has spoken into our darkened hearts. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He spoke into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure. What's the treasure? God. The sum total of his, the glory of God. We have the knowledge of the glory of God through the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the children of God, he calls us now to proclaim that, to radiate that glory. Let that light shine, 
Let it glorify. Let that transformation that's taken place in our life radiate out and transform other people's lives. You come face to face with the reality of who God is, the glory of God, it should leave us profoundly impacted. And we are to radiate and share and engage this world with that saying. Verse 4 in that passage says that um, um, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers and they can't see that glory. But that glory is within us. It's a treasure and we are to share that glory. So there's this intrinsic, inherent glory. What makes God heavy? What's the weightiness of God? It's everything that makes him God. Unsearchable riches of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 11. uh, Chapter 11. It's all that makes God God. And when that's manifest, we read about it, we experience his glory. That manifested glory is not to just be held on to. It is to be ascribed back to him and to the world. But something else about the glory of God that we find throughout the scriptures is the future glory of God. Something's going to happen one day that will leave this entire created world profoundly impacted. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. It's hard to believe. But one day, and Jesus didn't lie, one day he's going to return. He, the Son of Man, is going to come back and all, every eye will see him. Every knee will bow before him. Everyone in this world will mourn because the King of Kings has returned and his glory will shine and be seen. And they will be totally, wholly, completely undone. Habakkuk, the old prophet Habakkuk, said it this way, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That day's coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. It's at the end of time, at the end of this age. It's recorded, the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, explains it, describes it this way. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal, clear jasper. In other words, John the Apostle says, it's indescribable. I can't put words to it. The glory that's coming. One day, God is going to reassert His glory in this fallen, corrupt, dark world. And as sure as we're sitting here, 
the sky is going to open up, and the Son of Man is going to return, and the glory of God is going to cover this earth like the waters cover the sea. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess to the glory of God. The inherent, intrinsic glory is going to be fully, completely manifested, and this world will be undone and ruined by it, so to speak. And the world will ascribe glory to God. They will be forced to do that when the king returns in all his glory. Now, that's one of the great values of studying the book of Daniel. Because like no other book, I think, in the Old Testament, Daniel is a book that gives us a little glimpse of when that day is going to come and what that day is going to be like. Um, let me tease you a little bit because next week we'll, we'll do a little more introduction to the book of Daniel, but we'll get into it a little bit more. But let me tease you a little bit. If you look at the book of Daniel, and uh, I haven't really given you any opportunity to open your Bibles yet, um, but there are 12 chapters in Daniel. And we'll take the next several months going through those 12 chapters. The first chapter is, sets the setting it tells the story of how Daniel is a young man, young teen, and his friends ended up in Babylon and, uh, and under the ruthless dictator, Emperor Nebuchadnezzar. And it's, chapter 1 sets the setting. It's the, kind of the prologue. Then the next five chapters, chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, give some historical stories. That's where we find the fiery furnace and the, the, the lion's den and the handwriting on the wall in chapter 5, the historical account. And, um, and, and it's, it's written in, in like the third person, like, and Daniel did this, and then Daniel saw that, and then Daniel did this. And then chapters 8 through 12, it's different. It's no more the historical section, but chapters 8 through 12 focus on these prophetic visions. And that's when we're going to get into really some fun stuff about what Daniel saw and what he writes about. But it's no longer the third person. He now writes in the first person. I, Daniel, saw this. In this year of Darius, I saw this. And it's a first person. So you got chapter 1, the setting and the prologue. Then five chapters of historical, uh, two through six, five chapters of prophetic teaching, eight through 12. And I'm leaving out chapter seven. It's the center of the whole book. The center of the book. Five chapters before historical, five chapters after the prophetic. But chapter seven is right smack dab in the center of it. Now, chapter 7 has 28 verses to it. Obviously, you're trusting me with that. I see that. Great. <laughs> 28 verses to it. Smack dab in the center of chapter 7 are these verses, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he, come, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is the heart and soul of the book of Daniel. There is a God in heaven who is the sovereign ruler of all. And though we're going to get teased with a, a fiery furnace and a, a mad uh, emperor of, of world um, power, of Babylon, and, a, and, a, and a, another world power that will come on the scene after that, and another world power that will come on the scene after that, God is in charge. That's why I love, I love teaching the book of Daniel in, a, in an election year. What a great time to, to go through the book of Daniel. God is in charge. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the heart and soul. That's the center point. Daniel was constructed in such a way that our eyes will focus there because that is what it's all about. It be summarized very simply this way. God wins. He is the sovereign king and ruler of all. And he's going to put everything right. He's going to come and he's going to reign supreme. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the sovereign ruler of all. And nations come and nations go. Kings rise, kings go. All according to his Sovereign decrees, because he is in charge. He's king. And as we study the book of Daniel, we'll come face to face with that reality. But we'll also come face to face with the reality of a man who understood that. Even as a young man, Daniel understood the intrinsic glory of God. He was profoundly impacted by it. It, it impacted the way he lived his life in exile before a, a, a darkened, evil world system. He was profoundly impacted by the glory, the intrinsic glory of God. And he saw that glory. It was manifested to him. But he just didn't hold on to it. Daniel lived well into his 80s. And he lived a life that ascribed glory to God. He radiated that glory. And then he was used by God to pick up a, a quill on a parchment and write down the future glory of God that's coming one day. For us today to be able 2,500 years later to pick up and to study and to understand that God is in charge, he's coming again, and he gives us a little hint about when that'll all take place. What do we do with all that? Well, like Tim challenged us at the end of the year, at the beginning of 2024, our prayer is that we will come face to face maybe with a fresh and, and new vision of the glory of God. We can't impact this world unless we have been impacted by the glory of God. And we need daily, I think, 
to come face to face with the reality of the glory of God. I sure do. I, you know, you, most, many of you know I was, became a Christian when I was a little kid growing up in a Christian home. So I've known Jesus for, I'm going to be 69 next month, so for 64 years, whatever. And it's sometimes very discouraging and frustrating when I find myself getting more concerned about some of the things that are happening in this world or, or the you know, pains I've involved and endured. We need a, a, a fresh glimpse, a fresh view, vision of the glory of God because we will be profoundly impacted by it. And God was so gracious to give us a book that just spells it all out for us. The other wonderful thing is that we can have a relationship with that glorious God right now, right today. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus, boy, let me encourage you to do that. Here's the wonderful good news, that God has revealed himself to us. The Gospel of John writes in 1 John chapter 1, John wrote, we be, Jesus comes to this earth. The great God takes on flesh. He dwelt among us. And John writes, and we saw his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The good news this morning is that there's a God in heaven who loves you, and he would love to reveal himself to you. And he already did it 2,000 years ago with Jesus who came to this earth and he died on the cross. He paid for our sins. He rose again on the third day and he offers a free gift of eternal life. Free! To anyone who will put their trust in him. You mean I don't have to do something, give money, you know, do, obey the Ten Commandments, uh, walk an aisle, say a prayer? Nope. Because Jesus did all the work. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, what are you waiting for? It's the best thing you can ever do. And then you can learn more about this God who desires that personal relationship with you as we study through the book of Daniel. Would you bow your head, please? Father, thank you so much for allowing us the privilege the joy of knowing you and learning about you and, and, and in this book of Daniel in the weeks to come. Open our eyes to see your greatness that we can ascribe to you the glory due your name. That we who have this treasure in this earthen vessel of ours can, can radiate and shine forth of that glory into this dark world. And we can do it with, like Jesus did, with grace and with truth to a world that desperately needs to know you. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never put their trust in you, whether they're listening online or down in F3 downstairs or here, I, I, I pray, Lord, you would open their heart to respond to this good news that you love them that Jesus died for their sins, he rose again, and a free gift is there when they simply transfer their trust off of themselves and onto you and you alone. May that be true today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.